You're listening to the Anomalous Podcast Network. Multiple voices, one phenomenon. Hey guys, how's it going? Welcome back to the channel. Uh, it's good to see everybody here in the live chat. Um, yeah, let's just jump straight into it because I'm really excited to speak to my guest tonight. I've spoken to him once before, but uh, yeah, it's always a pleasure. So let's jump straight in with, if I can find my cursor, Mr. Tim McMillan. How's it going, Tim? What's going on, Vinny? How are you, man? Good I'm to doing be here. Good. Thank you. Thank you so much for yeah. coming on. Yeah, really appreciate it, man. I know you're a, a busy man, so yeah. Uh, it's always oh, good to talk course. to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's always fun, man. Always yeah. good but um, I thought we'd jump into something non-UFO related, if that's okay, because a lot of the stuff that you've been covering primarily recently has been about the war in Ukraine. So I think it would be, uh, you know, almost wrong of me not to bring it up at some point. So I figured, I think the first thing I noticed when it was started, being when it started, basically, and it was reported in mainstream media, I very quickly saw things on Twitter that kind of contradict, you know, there was contradictions all over the place and soon learned that it was better to start following the kind of threads that you were putting out with people like Graham Rendell chiming in and, you know, with, with the knowledge in that. So I don't really know what the question is. I guess it's like, does that worry you that the mainstream media put out such sketchy information? No, I mean, I, here's the thing, I, you know, and one of the things that one of the reasons that I've been covering it uh, so extensively, a couple of reasons. One, obviously, the defense national security beat has always been my beat. <laughs> you know, I kind of fell into UFOs because, frankly, UFOs fell into national security in the last couple of years. And, uh, although arguably, I guess they've always been there. And so this was my beat. But in addition to that, uh, you know. Eastern Europe, and particularly Russia, has always been an area of focus of mine uh, for writings that I've done for the Examiner, for a lot of stuff that I've done when it comes to events, is actually focused more on Europe, focused more on Russia in particular, and Vladimir Putin. And so this was you know, kind of my area there. And, you know, there's a couple of things when it comes to trying to cover a war. And so, you know, not to... Uh, there's obviously, like you said, there's a lot of chaotic information that comes out, but but that's really a filter of there's absolute chaos on the ground, especially in those early days of the war. You know, both sides, nobody knows what's going on. And yet there is this sensational appetite by the public to know what's going on. And so you get this rapid fire pace of information coming. And we live in a day and age where that information, you know, it was surreal at times, especially very early into this conflict. I was able to watch live in real time, live webcams that were up at different places. I could watch battles as they went on live. I mean, wow. unprecedented. And so you have this ability there where you've got this information that's coming so fast, but you're also seeing it, you know, we always think it's the truth on social media, but at the same time, it's under a lens there. So it's always just, we don't know what's going on behind the camera. You don't know what's on going on in the periphery, but there's this insatiable need to, to share information quick. And I think, uh, you know, for a lot of news outlets, uh, the same would be going on for, you know, the war in Syria or the middle East where my expertise isn't, or if there was something going on in the Pacific, uh, you know, most news organizations are jacks of all trades, though they have good bureau beat people. Uh, but they're just trying to cover as much as they can, as well as they can, yet competing with that rapid fire. I've got to get info out right now, right now. It's a it's definitely, pardon the pun, I know for a lot of the UFO crowd, it's an alien feeling. Because if there's anybody accustomed to being patient and waiting months, years, decades for information, it's the UFO crowd. And so yeah. it is a different pace. But but uh, that's that's primarily why you've seen a lot of interesting info along with purposeful misinfo that's sprinkled in there yeah and do you think this initially was planned to be a kind of quick invasion quick takeover um because now you know we're hearing things that it could go on potentially for a year or longer i mean it doesn't seem to have gone to plan by any means 
Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. I think if you look at how uh, the Russian military went into Ukraine, they, they really launched a, a pretty audacious plan, uh, which was multiple axes. So they're coming from multiple directions with the primary objective being the seizure of the capital city of Kiev to um, force a regime change. So unseat uh, President Zelensky and the, the duly elected leaders that are there so they could get a favorable government to their interest. Um, that's a... <laughs> It's a really bold plan, and it's one that requires extensive uh, planning. It, it requires ex well-trained troops, and you really have to have so many pieces. I think there's times in which people have seen uh, conflicts like, uh, you know, probably the only thing comparable would be the U.S. invasion uh, in Iraq, and you see that, and relatively, the United States went in there uh, and it was in over in, in, in roughly about three days. You, know, you had in the insurgency that came afterwards, and this is how it lingered for years. But this conflict of, of toppling the power and taking over a country happened quickly. But that's not easy. And it takes you know, a really massive combined arms warfare strategy where you're combining all these pieces. It's not easy to do. And frankly, uh, Russia has not even attempted something of this scale since World War II. And so... They don't have the experience. Uh, they actually didn't really engage in well combined arms warfare in World War II. It was more of just a blunderbuss of just keep punching through. And so, uh, you know, their initial plan, I think, uh, was based on this rapid seizure of the, the capital. I believe that there was some faulty intelligence. I think that's kind of universally agreed upon uh, that they didn't expect much resistance. And, you know, very, very quickly, you know, within the first couple of hours when they tried to uh, drop about 200, 300 paratroopers into the Hostomel airport outside of Kiev, did they suddenly discover, oh, this is not going to be 2014. Uh, you know, literally everyone is fighting us. Uh, all Ukrainians have come together. They're handing out guns. So on top of a, a, a military that was bolstered by uh, help from the United States and the United Kingdom, you've got. Ukrainians who are willing to fight. And so now you know, they lost the first battle of Kiev. That, that plan is over. They were defeated. <laughs> and um, now they're, they're trying to launch their eastern offensive. But even that is a little bit uh, precarious. And so when you hear that it could last for years or more, it really depends on is Russia able to advance right now? No. I mean, they're, they're taking very small kilometers at a time, if anything. Uh, and so it really will, will boil down to can they change that tempo while engaged in combat, which is not easy to do. And then will Ukraine have enough uh, combat power and ability to turn the table and start going on the offensive? So we hadn't seen that. So that's where you could see it last for years, potentially. I don't think that it will last for years. Uh, I think that we will reach a point where probably within the next month that Russia is really going to peter out and expend their ability to do anything on the Eastern front. And then provided Ukraine has reserves and the, the hardware, which I think they're getting in mass from the West, uh, they'll be able to turn around and start kind of turning the tables, and maybe pushing the Russia back out of their territory. Yeah. I think it seems as well, a lot of pictures that came out that the Russian artillery and their armaments and equipment seemed so old and questionable and you know that that's why it, that was funny because you can relate it to our uap secret russian technology and you think if they've if they can't you know if they haven't got these basic weapons then you think they've got super advanced technology mm. yeah no absolutely I, I think i said that very early on I, I said okay we can put that issue to rest uh the the russian federation is not responsible for the uap encounters that you know, any, in my opinion, and in particular, the ones that the U.S. military have been countering off the United States coast. It's just it, to me, that's not even something up for debate, uh, even if we were to suggest these were all misidentifications and they were more conventional drones that were Russian. Um, they just demonstrated absolutely horrible uh, ISR intelligence surveillance reconnaissance ability, meaning they don't have even basic capabilities to get real-time ISR. So they surely do not have anything advanced, any type of advanced aerospace platforms. You know, we have learned that a lot of their claims over the last couple of years are all just that, claims, their propaganda, their bluster. You know, we have not, their Su-57 supposed first stealth fighters, 
the first time we'll see them this year will be them flying over the May Day Parade, uh, May 9th, or the uh, Victory Day Parade, excuse me, in, in Moscow. They're going to be <laughs> doing an air show. <laughs> They're not engaged in combat. And so, yeah, I mean, they just, Russia has never been, their military forces have never been heavy on the aerospace side. And uh, the idea that they could have leapt with the technology was always uh, you know, very <laughs> unlikely. But now I, th I think we can say with just about absolute certainty, absolutely not. <laughs> this is yeah. not Russian technology that people are saying. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I mean, I could do a whole show talking about Ukraine, but uh, <laughs> let's move on to UFOs before everybody kind of switches off. Now, yeah. let's get the Gary Reed thing out of the way because it has been covered a lot. Um, I'm not sure how much we can talk about it, but I just as a couple of points that I wanted just to sort of get your clarification on. And is that that mm -hmm. the first part I would say is Gary Reed. He was ousted. Now, does he sit within the role still without assigned responsibilities? Has someone temporarily taken over? Where where are we at with that part of it right now? Sure. Yeah, he he was he was ousted. He was dismissed from the office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence. OK. And one of the things that's very important to for people to remember is that within the Department of Defense of the U.S. government as a whole, uh, you know, the U.S. government uh, is the, the largest single. If we consider the government as one entity, it is the largest single employer of people in the world. And on top of that, it, it also has, it can be more likened to a giant industry where you have, let's say the Department of Defense over here is one company. You have the you know, FBI over here, who's another company, that type of thing. And then even within those companies, you've got these sub companies. And so the Undersecretary of Defense is at the pinnacle of the Department of De Defense. This is where the Secretary of Defense's office, he has his undersecretaries, they branch off. So this is really, you know, the plateau of where you're, you're able to get in, in a career uh, in, in the defense uh, department of defense. And so, and, and particularly the position that he was in where he was a director, the only way to achieve a position higher to that is you have to be appointed. You have to be nominated by the president. So this is as high as you can get. If you're just somebody who starts from the ground up theoretically, although they rarely do that. <laughs> um, and so he was, dismissed, withdrawn, removed from his position at, at the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence. He's He's gone. For all intents and purposes, he, he is fired from the Undersecretary of Defense's office. Now, it, it is uh, extremely difficult, damn near impossible to actually fire government employees, like outright fire them that you think of in the private sector. Okay, you know, If you work at a department store and they want to fire you, they just fire you. You're gone. You, you don't have a job anymore. Uh, that's not the case in the U.S. government. It is extremely hard, particularly once you reach uh, senior levels, positions like this. And so a lot of times they remove you, which is what happened with, with uh, Gary Reed. They removed him from that position, yet they're still getting paid by the Department of Defense. And they're still in a, in a limbo. They call it flying a desk for a part of time. So it, it sounds crazy. And you think, gosh, why does anybody even try to work hard? Because I could get fired, but still get a paycheck and, and have an office that I show up to and do nothing. And their employees, you know, I can I can think of one right uh, right now off the top of my head who has been flying a desk for nine months now. You know, wow. they do nothing. They do literally do nothing. But they're separated from what they're doing. They have no responsibilities. They're, they're not in direction of anything. And so that happened with him. And then once you're in this limbo position, uh, it's usually a it's the government's way of saying it's very, very hard to fire you. We want you to quit. <laughs> we want you to resign. If you'll just resign, we'll give you a cake and you can go about your merry way. And uh, in this case, it doesn't look like Mr. Reed wanted to do that. And so then it becomes a protracted, you know, legal battle with general counsel. Can we do this? Can we do that? This type of thing. Or. Uh, you have the opportunity where, again, you have these separate sub components that are spread out throughout government. You can have somebody that says, I'll take you. You can come work for me. You know, I, I, you know, and this happens frequently because it, it is it's there's a buddy system. The reason that uh, Gary Reed was in the position he was in was because uh, Michael Vickers, the, the former undersecretary for intelligence, brought him in. Um, and so. Uh, Gary Reed was then someone at the Defense Intelligence Agency said, OK, we'll you know, 
you can come over here. And so now he is at the Defense Intelligence Agency uh, in, a, in an advisory position. So, so not in charge of anybody, not, uh, not, uh, you know, not making any real decisions and, and, and offering uh, quote advice. <laughs> and, and then that, how long that will remain is always kind of, uh, it's up in the air because these type of positions often is just a, another way of saying somebody's flying a desk. I just don't have a desk in here to put it. And so stick him over here. That's where he's going to go to work. That's where he'll go collect his paycheck. So he's got to be there every day. Um, and so right now, to the best of my knowledge, last I heard, he, he is at the Defense Intelligence Agency. So uh, it, it is it is a nuanced and widely confusing kind of process. Uh, I will say that being ousted or being kicked out as a director of an intelligence, you know, he was uh, up to, you know, a month ago, he was the most senior counterintelligence, law enforcement, and security officer for the Department of Defense worldwide. Huge, very significant position. And so being kicked out of that position or losing that position is, uh, you know, it's, it's not unprecedented, but it, it rarely happens. And it's, uh, it's a very dramatic event. And you have to really screw up for that to happen. Yeah, absolutely. And then, then his role was directly uh, responsible for AOI MSG as well, wasn't it? He was. I, I can I can say that for a fact, uh, just because uh, I was was able to obtain the um, the official classification sheet, which lists the uh, the employees and their roles and the uh, wh where they fall into under the the uh, different programs and everything. And so he was the uh, he was the chief executive. Uh, so he was the senior person in charge of that. And so it's kind of an interesting thing there because uh, for me, it was very interesting because that's really the, the collection of, of UAP data. And, and this, this is really a, a intelligence collection um, program. It really shouldn't have fallen under counterintelligence, law enforcement, security. So it's, so it's a little odd that it ever fell under that to begin with. Um, yeah. But that he indeed was the senior uh, principal executive that was in charge of it. And do you not think that even the, even the program sitting in the OS, uh, OUSDI in itself is a bit strange because they surely they can't meet the intent of Congress due to the kind of not being such an operational group compared to maybe if it was sitting under ODNI and DOD collaboration or something like that? Sure. Yeah, it's always been an, an odd place because um, USDI, for the most part, is really just a policy and uh, you know, overseer. They oversee yeah. all the programs and everything within the Department of Defense. And so at the operational level, they, they don't have those personnel. So even though they were you know, technically the overseers and, and still are the overseers of that program, at the operational level, that has to be designated to someone else. I and mean, they can hire people in to do that specifically. But the, the people at the highest levels who are in charge there, they're, they're not... Uh, they're really not going to be the people who are collecting reports, analyzing reports, surveying reports, anything like that. They're just stamping off on them. And uh, they, they do have uh, potentially a critical role in this because they can stamp off on how how well or not well the program is being handled. And so if you're somebody who who certainly doesn't think that this is an issue that needs to be going on in the U.S. government, doesn't need to be handled, uh, you can quite easily stamp off on nonsense or, you know, you know, not definitely make it, it's easy to put it out there and say whether you want a program to fail or succeed. I mean, it's in, in a highly bureaucratic, highly political system like the U.S. government. And so uh, it's always been relatively interesting, though, because they're not an operational component. It, it would be, um, frankly, to, to, to be well done, uh, it would take... Uh, you know, a, a, almost a, an, another act of Congress, you would need a joint all of government type approach because that, you know, we, we've I, I've discussed this a lot is that, uh, it, you know, the Department of Defense is limited into what they can look at. And so yeah. you know, if something flies over the, the continental United States, there's not really anything the Department of Defense can do. Uh, you know, they're not supposed to uh, investigate over 
continental United States, not supposed to investigate U.S. citizens. And so that falls under the FBI or Department of Homeland Security. These are totally separate branches of government. So you really would need a central kind of whole of government, uh, you know, body that that, could, that had the authority to investigate all of that. Yeah, because wasn't that one of the problems with the uh, the original UAP task force is that they just didn't have you know they were they were roadblocked left right and center for the and almost set up to fail from the start is that sure. right i mean yeah well i mean and and this is um the thing that's interesting and i've always said that is i think a lot of people who have have come into this maybe a purely uap or ufo enthusiast uh, have have gotten a crash course in government bureaucracy <laughs> and how the U.S. government operates. And so this is not entirely limited to this topic by any means. I mean, this goes on with intelligence topics, defense topics all across the spectrum. People don't want to share. It's an extremely territorial place. And frankly, if it's not something that particularly interests one or one group or one agency or one area, they, they will either not help stonewall uh, the opposite end of that is when it does become interesting and then suddenly another group wants to fight and say, well, I'm the one, you know, this is supposed to be my responsibility. Um, that often goes on between uh, branches of the government, like uh, the U.S. Army and, and Air Force will fight over who has responsibility for certain things. And, and that's how we get the Apache attack helicopter and the A-10 Warthog, because the Air Force and Army couldn't agree on who provided close air support. So they're like, well, we'll both just develop our own stuff. <laughs> and I mean, this, so, so you, you end up, it was always set up a uh, very difficult, I mean, it's a difficult topic already. Uh, and it's a difficult and that you would need all of these different players to play along. And then you run the risk of all of these players also suddenly saying, Ooh, there's something really to this. And instead of working together as a combined effort, suddenly uh, space force starts up their own thing. Air force starts up their own thing. You know, the DOD has their own thing. The Army has their own thing. And then everybody's actually competing with each other instead of working together. And so it, it's always been extremely problematic. And it unfortunately, um, really, <laughs> this is indicative of how a lot of things operate in government. And I think that that's why for a lot of people, that's why a lot of people I've spoken to who work in government, being familiar with government, you know, even tangentially, which was always interesting during the Gary Reid investigation. You know, I had connections when I was in law enforcement to that undersecretary of defense for intelligence of law enforcement because they were law yeah. enforcement. And sure. so tangentially, there was there was different times that I worked with the DOD on, on stuff. And so, um, you know, knowing and all this familiarity of it. That's why I think certain things like how ATIP came about and how Lou Elizondo has described ATIP and how it, it operated um, sort of how, you know, some people can interpret it outside of the bounds of, of uh, authority or, or official approval, but it's not necessarily accurate. But frankly, these types of, of programs and how that operates are in abundance all across government. If there's anybody you've ever know that's worked in the Pentagon, particularly in intelligence, will tell you that. Anybody who's done any operational work will tell you that. And they will tell you that's where the best work is always performed, because that's the only way you can circumvent a lot of those bureaucratic roadblocks. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, sorry, I had a question in my head and it just jumped out because I saw some comments there. Oh, uh, it was about, you mentioned ATIP there. And of course, the, the debate rages on with the differences between ORSAP and ATIP and where ATIP sat and what responsibilities it had and what Lou had. Do you think it's time that that conversation just gets put to one side because it's kind of really not doing anybody any favors? Um, I, well, uh, for me, I already have, <laughs> you know, okay, so cool. I, I, can't, yeah. I can't tell people what they can do and what they want to argue with and bicker about on, on Twitter and Facebook or whatever else. Um, I will say that very rarely does anybody ever see me engage in that because I have. It, it's reached the point now where I don't know uh, what uh, what can be gained from from you know getting any kind of clarity or, or understanding of of OSAP. You know these things. We're now we're going on over a decade old. I don't know. You know that's certainly, in my opinion, not going to assist in understanding. Uh, 
uh, what's going on today, what's going on in the contemporary, and it's not going to help solve UAP, and it's not going to help solve the government's effort now. And for me personally, uh, I think that the core of the claims that were made by whether it was people in the offset program or Lou Elizondo were always that there were objects, sightings of, of things that were of unknown origin, that were, you know, they could not place. They, they were UFOs. There were UAP events that were occurring uh, within the context of, of military situations. And so that core claim for me has already been substantiated and, and proven based on what we've seen in the evolution uh, in the last three or four years. You know, when you're seeing uh, congressional legislation being passed, when you're seeing lawmakers speak about it publicly, when you're seeing that kind of thing, then that, in my opinion, has has established that core claim is valid. And so we can kind of move forward from there. I don't know what I don't know why or what is it hope to be gained by that, you know, other than uh, maybe ridicule. And, um, yeah, to that end, I would just say that is a, an interesting way to go about an argument because, um, they're mutually exclusive. You can actually, you can have people who believe weird things. You can have people who are crazy. Uh, you know, Ramajan, the mathematician, the famous Indian mathematician believed that a Hindu goddess, uh, taught him, um, uh, what we use now, the mathematics that we now use for computers that, that taught him, uh, the, you know, uh, an entirely new branch of mathematics. Did he? I don't know. But I do know that that is the mathematics. You know, modular mathematics is what we use today. We, we can thank that in large part to us being able to communicate right now and use a computer. And sure. so it, it is mutually exclusive that people can have fantastical beliefs, you know, and claim to have seen a werewolf or, you know, whatever, Skinwalker Ranch, maybe they did, maybe they didn't, but that's mutually exclusive from, are there these events going on that, that pilots or, or other service members or just the average public are encountering? Two different things. <laughs> so I don't yeah. know, I don't, I don't know what, the, it's kind of the old, uh, you know, it's, it's not even throwing the baby out with the bathwater. It's, you know, trying to boil the baby while turning the water up uh, and it's to no end <laughs> yeah that's what it seems like it really does seem like it's just a just a recurring groundhog day of conversation and argument and debate and it's just yeah yeah i, I, I agree with everything you said there yeah yeah I, I don't i don't i truly don't know uh i don't know uh, other than I will say that uh, in my experience, the, those kinds of questions, even if people have valid questions, there's nothing wrong with answering them. They aren't answered typically by Twitter and they aren't answered on Facebook. You, you actually have to get out of that kind of echo chamber. And there's, <laughs> I tell you, I'm an expert of nothing. And so, um, you know, anything that I, I've commented on, I, you know, I don't know. I, I talk to people who know. I talk to people that know in the system. And that even extends beyond. I see this a lot where people are saying, well, Lou said this or Lou said that or Chris Mellon said this or Chris Mellon said that. This type of thing. We'll find out how normal is what they're saying in the context of the setting that they're saying it in. And that means, mm. you know, for me as is, is investigative journalist, I don't, you know, I don't ask Lou or Chris if this is normal because I already know they're biased. You know, we already know what theirs is. You ask people who work in those government systems what's normal, what's not normal. And you can ask those questions outside of uh, outside of UFOs. You know, I saw there was you know, recently a raging debate about the the CRADA and the TTSA thing. And, and I just kind of said, well, oh, you know, why doesn't anybody contact anybody who works in government contracts or has worked in government contracts or a government watchdog? There's plenty of those NGOs yeah. out there. And just ask them. How does Kratos work? You know, how does this work? Is this normal? I mean, just ask them. <laughs> we don't have to interpret or debate it. But but that's uh, I'll get off my soapbox. But, but to answer your question there, I think um, particularly we, we seem to beat a lot of questions to death that we don't even try to answer at times. We just continue. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And one question I did have for you was regarding classified briefings and then Literally within the hour leading up to the, me speaking with you, we saw a new article from Brian Bender in Politico titled The UFO Briefings on Capitol Hill Have Begun. Lawmakers Aren't Impressed. Have you had time to scan it at all? I haven't. You're breaking this news to me. So I have not seen, uh, I haven't read the article yet. I haven't heard about it. So yeah, now I'm curious. 
it's it's i mean i have i've read it once but obviously i like to go back and kind of really sort of uh take my time to absorb it but the it does mm-hmm. seem like the congress are really trying to put pressure on now um, but there was mm-hmm. one statement which i'm just going to find and read out that did actually stand out to me and typical that i'm probably not going to be able to find it now uh here it is uh it says quote i have seen everything we have in the files and i'm very confident that they are not ours said a former senior intelligence official who had authority over the ufo portfolio referring to classified U.S. aircraft programs. It just stood out, you know, I think. Uh, yeah, sure, it's, yeah. Now, that's what I was really curious. What, what was your, um, now I'm, now I'm going to interview you, Vinny. Uh, what was your general feel from the article? Was it when you said that they weren't impressed, were they not impressed with the sightings being presented or the work being done? Just like, I, think, uh, I think they kind of seemed like they were okay with the collection of everything, mm-hmm. but then it was kind of like they really need to deal with doing something with it now. That kind of was the initial thing I got from that, that first read. Um, it might change the second time I read it, but that was kind of the first thing that really stood out. Sure. Well, and I, I said I'll be eager to look at that because that, that, that's what I'm curious about. What you mentioned is kind of an interesting aspect of all of this because being familiar with – the intelligence collection process. Uh, this is a slow-moving process, and whereas I know a lot of uh, a lot of people in the UFO community, you know, are are really kind of aghast at the idea that the government could be treating this as if they're discovering it for the first time and going through this process of what's called the intelligence cycle uh, for the first time. Whether that's true or not, I don't know, but they're definitely treating it that way. And so that cycle is a slow moving process because it's they're unlike what we see when we see intelligence, whether it's on Ukraine or Russia or whatever else. Th- these are programs that have been going on for decades. You know, they're well firm. This is as if they're treating it a topic that they've never dealt with before. And so it's this collection, baseline, interpretation of the data. Where do we go from here? Kind of circular process here. And so it is interesting because I think um that's what I'm curious about is you, you reach this part where you've collected, but then uh, I think the thing that frustrates probably lawmakers uh, just based on the sound of what you said and the rest of us is that first stage and it is you, you've got all this. You say, well, here it is. We know this, this, and this is real or this is occurring. And then when you say, well, what is it? And you go, I don't know. <laughs> That's frustrating. I think it's frustrating for everybody. And so it. Uh, I'm curious, to, but that's always been where I have interpreted the process was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Fractal Mind here in the chat raises a good point um, that the law make, the law, lawmakers aren't impressed. Yeah, uh, I've, here we go. Agencies need to take this issue more seriously so the lawmakers aren't mm-hmm. impressed that there doesn't seem to be that sense of urgency and seriousness from the multiple agencies. Yeah. Which, Understand you know... That. Sure. And that, that was the other side I was just curious about, because I, I can see that as well, wholeheartedly. And, and I think, uh, I mean, I truly believe that if uh, if they're going to be able to achieve what lawmakers want uh, and what the lawmakers have requested and, and has been signed in law by the president of the United States. So so they're obligated to provide is going to require them to really designate uh, specific people to handle this task outside of how I think they have tried to handle it, uh, especially you know, beginning uh, at the beginning of last year. You know, there was mm. some shuffling uh, inside who was handling it, the, the, the people who were handling it from 2017 to, to 2020 kind of changed hands. And so then there was this hot potato kind of mix of it, but it was handed to people who uh, this wasn't their only job designation and, and they had other portfolios and other things going on. I think it's going to be extremely hard to try to investigate this under that precedent because uh, you know, if you're trying to juggle defense and intelligence things, you're, you're always going to have things that are going on in the world that are more pressing and seem more immediate than UAP does. You know, we can, mm. I know that that frustrates some people. And when, when I say that, um, but uh, it's the same reason that we open this conversation. I've been covering Ukraine for the last two months. It's very immediate. It's a, it's an area of where my, my interest and expertise lies. And it's very immediate where there's lives being lost, lives are being changed. Uh, you know, the effects of what's going on there, you know, it dramatically changed people's lives instantly 
and, and permanently. Whereas UAP, you could say, man, this has been around for decades. <laughs> They're not attacking us, you know, maybe longer. Uh, there's always going to be something that seems to be more immediate. And so is, is Russia going to nuke us? Is, is North Korea going to nuke us? Uh, if, you're, if you're talking to defense and intelligence people, that is always going to take precedent over yeah. UAP. I'm not sure I understand. But that is not <laughs> what I don't even know where that came from. <laughs> but, but, but that is not, uh, I guess it was my watch. I was like, what the hell? Jesus. No, the CIA is listening to me. Um, <laughs> see, they're agreeing. They're not sure they understand. Uh, but that doesn't mean that there's a lot of issues that, that aren't as pressing as being as full on nuclear war um, that still need to be handled and still need to be discussed. They still need to be investigated. And this is one of them. And so I think uh, I would wholeheartedly agree. Uh, we, we certainly spend a lot of money on a lot of different things that are perhaps not nearly as pressing. So I don't want, want to take anybody away from their, their national security work. Let's just get sure. some other people to do it. I think one thing that we noticed last year, specifically in the lead up to the uh, UAP task force prelim preliminary assessment is that the, there was members, people on Capitol Hill were getting briefings and we saw senators and, and that talking on the steps coming out saying, yes, we've had briefings. And even though they didn't say anything about them, just the fact that they were there on TV for people to see was a positive thing for the community. And so I, what I was sort of looking, looking at was, will we see that again with the amount of apparent classified briefings that are due this year? You know, are we likely to see them a similar kind of thing? Because I think it does... It is good to hear from these people on TV. Sure. And, and I, I think it it, it, uh, it it was nice. It was very interesting. I think a lot of the responses were, were you know, really interesting, especially when you saw lawmakers like uh, Marco Rubio and people coming out on TV and discussing them. You know, these are people who are, are very vested in their political careers. And so if they're willing to talk about it publicly, frankly, that only further establishes the legitimacy of the topic. And so will we see that or not again? I don't know. Obviously, they're very limited uh, in, yeah. in terms of what they can say, you know, classified you know, Congress in and of itself. And, and I think this is maybe an area where, where some people have been confused. But the Congress, Congress has no authority to declassify anything. So they can't even declassify this stuff if they wanted to, nor can they discuss it if it's classified. Um, they just they don't have that authority. It's it's outside of their bounds unless they themselves want to get in trouble. Uh, however, if it's an issue that they know is, is significant to their constituents, they know that people are asking about it. They can certainly do what we saw last year where they're, mm -hmm. they're acknowledging that we're being briefed on it. And so I think uh, the, the volume of public responses will come from the volume in which people ask for public responses, including people in the media and the public. You know, hey, have you been doing what's going on with this? What's going on with this? I think that's the only way that you're going to, to get anything out of anybody. Um, to what extent, I don't know. But at the same time, we could likely get at least enough that we got last year. That at least e either establishes what they're being provided continues to this is a legitimate topic or, you know, it, they're going, eh, this is BS. And so um, be interesting. I, I think we could likely see all of that. Uh, I think especially now with, with with Bender putting that out in the ether, um, certainly I may try to follow up on. There's certainly a, a lot of people who should follow up on it. Yeah, imagine imagine uh, the guy guys are at UAP Media. We'll have something yeah. out soon. Oh, mm -hmm. I noticed. I, I, I just want to say this to everybody in the chat. If I've missed your questions, I apologize. But when talking about the U.S. government, I have to focus really hard because <laughs> it's it's a lot for me. You know. Uh, coming from the UK, especially. So if I missed your question, I apologize. But we do have one here from Graham. Hello, Graham. Uh, does Tim think that any lack of cooperation and movement on the uh, USAF's part is down to legacy, lack of urgency or something else entirely? Great question. Mm -hmm. All of the above. <laughs> First of all, it's great to, great to hear from you, Graham. Um, and uh, yeah. All of the above in, in, in a couple of ways. So I, I don't know how much is purposeful uh, in terms of, let's say, a cover-up. I know a lot of people say there's a cover-up. Maybe there is. I don't know. Uh, I've never 
encountered anything that, that led me to believe there was some kind of systemic cover up involving people who, who absolutely knew for certain what the these objects were that had crash retrievals, this kind of stuff. Maybe there are. <laughs> I just haven't talked to those people. I know that there are some other people like Ross Colthbert and, and others who have. Um, you know, explored that particular area. So I don't want to make anybody mad by them saying, well, but what about the bodies? Okay. They may be there. <laughs> um, I just haven't encountered that. However, um, there is de facto cover up where you have people who feel like this isn't something they wanted to discuss. They don't want to deal with it. They don't want to be forced to deal with it. And so therefore they're going to diminish it. They're going to tell people not to report it and everything. Um, not, to cover up the existence of something per se, sure. but, but perhaps just to try to make it go away because they don't want to have to deal with it. With the, with the Air Force, obviously they handled Blue Book. They were the ones in charge of, of really the, the only official investigations that we saw um, for the greater part up until recently to the Navy kind of stepped in. And so I would say there's probably uh, some, some bitter taste or, that has kind of inherited you know, a legacy that has come down from that because they really wanted to wash their hands of it after 20 years of dealing with it. But frankly, because I don't think they ever had, it, they were no closer to, to any answers uh, by the end than they were in the beginning. You know, it was the same thing. They're real. <laughs> we don't know what it is. And so um, I think that you have that. And I think that that uh, that comes down almost informally where it's just the tone and, and, and message that's conveyed. And that's the attitude that is conveyed from above the officers below. And as they go through the ranks, it's the same one. It stays. It's kind of a systemic uh, willful apathy is what I like to call it. And so I think that, that out of all the branches, the Air Force would absolutely be the one uh, that has that the most. Uh, the where the Air Force is also uh, it's an interesting branch out of all the services. <laughs> it, it's it's a different branch, I will say, um, from from growing up and being around uh, army branches my, my entire life up until recently in Germany. I will say it has been a difference coming around an arm or an Air Force post. And so that in and of itself, the Air Force is just a it's a different branch. There's just different, different people who typically go in the air force and different priorities and just different approaches. And so I can't say for certain what it is other than uh, it definitely out of everyone, the air force seems to be the most resistant. Uh, and I would say that if I had to speculate, it's probably a totality of, you know, certainly, there's not 20,000, 30,000 people who are in on the cover up. <laughs> so even <laughs> if there's like this, you know, small level uh, that's, that's setting that tone, the prevailing theme as it's spread out is this kind of willful apathy. Yeah. Um, Jay Allen here says, uh, Vinny, Yusuf speaking. So, yep, Jay Allen, good to see you, my friend. I know you're a regular here. Um, okay, we admit they are real and they are not ours or foreign assets. What now? Do we admit we can't do anything about these incursions? Where is the panic line? That's, a, I mean, a really great question. And, and so I think that, uh, I mean, first of all, I think that if you reach a definitive conclusion in which you say, okay, these are not a foreign government. These are not ours. These are absolutely real. Um, I think that now at this point in time, frankly, if you want to see anything meaningful done, it has to be brought out of uh, the defense national security sector because you know, they're going to treat it exactly like they would a defense and national security issue. Uh, and I'm not going to begrudge them for that. And so when you're treating it like a defense and national security issue, particularly if you're talking about something that uh, you have no actual intelligence on and you have no defense against and it can move with impunity into your airspace, it, you you you're you're entirely vulnerable to it that is under the guise of a, of a defense issue that is a huge de defense risk and it's something that you treat as ultra classified you're not going to discuss it it's not going to be a public issue and it's going to be narrowed to the, those compartmentalized of scopes and uh, i don't know that that's actually beneficial whatsoever into solving it because that not only does it cut the public out of the loop but it narrows the scope of of people who could potentially provide scientific or academic research and, and uh, can contribute to actually solving it. 
And so I think if that ever becomes the case, it would be extremely interesting. Uh, if I was the Department of Defense um, and I reached that conclusion, I would gladly then say, go to the president or whoever and say, Mr. President, this is not a defense issue. This is a scientific uh, technological matter. And we would like to hand this off to <laughs> whoever <laughs> this is. Um, and I'd pass that buck to somebody um, who could treat it like a scientific technical matter. You know, still provide assistance. You can still have defense components that provide assistance through classified sensor systems, this kind of stuff. You can still provide that that uh, information, but do it under a scientific context. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, Dan's here as well. Hello, Dan. Uh, Tim, do you know if sensors have been tasked with tracking UAP using parameters set by previous encounters? <laughs> For a fact, no. Uh, have I heard lots of... of, of rumors or mummers or uh, have I heard from people who have worked um, in even the more modern UAP programs um, or even who have worked in other branches of government who would have tasking on this. So, so maybe they weren't assigned to the task force, let's say, but, but they work at an agency uh, that might have certain sensor suites and, and somebody at the task force might call them up. They might be their uh, billet, their liaison. To it have they been asked to do that kind of thing they i have been told yes mm -hmm. now what those parameters are i don't know uh that kind of stuff is classified what the sensors themselves or, or different systems being used i don't know all of that is classified um you know i caveat that when you know because i started that by saying i've heard rumors and you're saying but tim you, you're saying you've talked to people who work in government to work at this place who've said it that's not a rumor that should be firsthand um Yes, that's correct. And, and I think in a lot of instances, maybe that's better than rumors. But at the same time, uh, I say that under the big caveat that that's always first. You, know, you, you only have one source that's saying that you only have one person. And uh, for obvious reasons, there's no material evidence to support that kind of claim. And so for something like that, me to say definitively, uh, I would need kind of multiple people <laughs> to, to all yeah. corroborate the same thing or physical evidence. And that's extremely hard to do since even hearing about it is kind of dancing the line uh, of what's classified. But, but I have heard that that is the case. And I don't know if that's, I've heard nuclear as well. I don't know in what context, um, you know, whether that is just merely monitoring certain nuclear ass, uh, assets when they're in place, uh, such as the aircraft carriers, the nuclear power that are on them, whether it's uh, nuclear powered submarines, whether it's submarines with nuclear warheads. I don't know that, that but I do know that, that nuclear energy has always come up a lot in those kind of conversations. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, Yone asks, Tim, I wonder, since you live in Germany, does the government pay any attention to the phenomena or is it covered in the news? Here in the Netherlands, unfortunately, it's not covered at all. Yeah, absolutely not. <laughs> absolutely <laughs> not. I would say that uh, it is... Um, almost non-existent, you know, in German media um, and, and the general German public, uh, uh, for the most part, I would say, is, is certainly not even near as interested as, um, as people in, especially in the United States and the United Kingdom. And so, but it's, it's absolutely not on the news. I can tell you that much, even at the height of, um, you know, when the when the U.S. Department of Defense is talking about it, when the U.S. is is passing bills about it. So even when you you see Politico and the Washington Post and the New York Times, um, you know, German media is not covering that <laughs> whatsoever. So, yeah, you, no. <laughs> we, and it's, it's funny because here in the U.K., we we want more it to be taken more seriously. But then we get the Sun and the Daily Star putting out these just sensationalist nonsense stories nine times out of ten. And it really mm -hmm. doesn't help at all. But then the odd the odd article does have you know some some weight to it. It's difficult. It is. I, I would say that the the UK media has kind of come in second, uh, and I think it, it matches with the interest level as well. Uh, Australia has done some some fairly decent stuff. I, I think mm. it takes uh, it takes any of the foreign media markets or anybody. To, to specifically task a journalist, you know, an editor say, look, what the hell's going on over there in the United States with this? I need you to try to get to the bottom of it. 
uh, where you can get a really rich and in-depth kind of article or news piece to be brought to a different foreign market. Uh, unfortunately, that really hasn't been done. It, it, it isn't done. Uh, and, and I think it's probably mitigating with these news companies, A, resources. So, so your foreign correspondents are limited. Um, and, you know, what do you designate them to do that type of thing? And maybe the, the general idea of prevailing belief that it's not going to be very interesting to your audience. And, and for here in Germany, that uh, I would say that that's a big factor. I mean, a lot of things that, that are, uh, that seem very normal that we're very accustomed to, you, you, you couldn't turn on a, a television show in the U S without some kind of paranormal or ghost hunting show or something like that. That's just it's not something that the people, um, in Germany are really interested in whatsoever. Yeah. No, I can understand it. I mean, hopefully in the future, as this all picks up, that might change, but I guess, I, again, it's patience and time. I would, I would hope so. I mean, I, you know, I will be the first to admit I, I like a good ghost story and I'm surrounded by hundreds of years of history and tragic battles. And, uh, you know, that was one of the things I actually looked for. I was like, man, is there any good ghost stories around here? You know, we <laughs> nice. just, they're fun legends. And, uh, yeah. only, I only found one, uh, here near me about a werewolf, which I need to publish that article. I may hold it until Halloween this year, but that's a uh, good idea. I, I, I will, I will I'll give you the exclusive teaser. I actually tracked down the last European werewolf. Whoa. The actual person. The actual person. So the, the legend is out there. If you look up the Morbach monster in Germany, which is not far from me, you might be able to find it. But but after extensive I don't I'm embarrassed to even say how much work I did into it. Going to <laughs> going to national archives in France. It became an obsession wow. to to find this werewolf. And uh, oh. I, I not only found the grave, but the actual person that is supposedly the werewolf. So <laughs> I need to publish it. Right? Maybe I'll handle it. And yeah, I don't know if I'm impressed. Like I said, it became an obsession. Who, who goes to France to look through archives and stuff to find them? But uh, but it became this interesting thing. Were they real? You know, it's a long way of me saying that I enjoy a good paranormal story. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Absolutely. We're <laughs> steeped in it here in the UK, so I can fully appreciate that. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, now, listen, we're we're running up almost against the clock. I'm going to ask you this one last question. Um, on another show recently, you were asked about the 23 minute video that is now kind of infamous in the halls of ufology. Um, but you stated that you believe there's probably better footage out there. Now, to what extent? Do you know that that's the case or have you been told anything? Can you elaborate on why you made that statement? Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. In, in terms of the, the, the 23 minute video, you know, that uh, I certainly believe, I don't know what it shows, but I do believe it exists primarily because my sourcing on, on its existence uh, came from some leaked documents <laughs> that were official. And so I would assume uh, that one would not just falsify, uh, you know, documents to that ex extent. But I, again, I don't know what, uh, I don't know exactly what it shows, but, but it was specific enough that I, you know, say 23 minutes and 47 seconds or something like there was an exact kind of time frame on there. Uh, but, but when I said that my belief that, um, there was better information is, is that particular video in question there, off the top of my head was filmed in 2013, 2014, 2015 timeframe. It was just based on the documents that's all. And so, um, you know, there's better technology <laughs> in the past <laughs> seven, eight, six years, in, in addition to tasking different technology. And, uh, you know, we have been, there's been a lot of, um, uh, there's been a lot of different uh, curious defense issues that have arisen in, in the last few years that don't relate to UAP, but rather, let's say that the situation in Ukraine, you know, Russia was building up this for this invasion for over a year. Uh, you have the situation going on in China, uh, which is really heated up in the last five, six years. Um, and, and then obviously you've got Iran, you've, you've got all these different issues that require a lot of precise intelligence. You want to know technical intelligence. What are they testing? What are they flying? These types of things. So that means that you uh, both develop enhanced uh, sensor capabilities and intelligence capabilities. 
to gather different forms of data and you employ them uh, potentially to more extreme than you have in the past. You know, after the early 1990s, we really weren't spying on Russia all that much. We, we could, in fact, we could, we could buy the plans to nukes for a bottle of vodka uh, after <laughs> the collapse of the Soviet Union. So you didn't necessarily need to, to rely on some of your, your more covert or your more technological methods of collection. That's not been the case. And a lot of what we see where we see a, a really kind of turbulent time right now, I mean, where there's a war, mm -hmm. the biggest war in Europe that's been building for the last couple of years. And I think uh, in the defense community has been firmly aware of it. Didn't know whether it would be China, didn't know whether it would be Russia, but you knew what was going on. And so de facto in spying on those types of things, you're going to encounter things that are more frequent. Uh, and so I think that that in itself, A, the technology is better, B, the potential to encounter it is more frequent. And I think uh, given the fact, it's particularly post-2017, when, when, when Lou Elizondo came out, ATIP came out, suddenly people in, in government who, who had access to these things were like, oh, cool. I can I can look through this. Let me look through some of my data or let me actually use my assets specifically look at certain things. You can do that. And that goes back to what I mentioned first uh, earlier, this idea that some of the best work in government is done, not necessarily by an office with a big flagpole up point, out front that says, you know, UAP agency, <laughs> but rather by by the the analyst or the person who has access to satellite technologies or airborne technologies who says, hey, you know, I'm going to go through and look at this or, you know, what? we've got a, a nuclear carrier that's moving through the Mediterranean and I've got an airborne asset. I think I'm going to watch it for a while. Let's see if anything pops up over here and let's see what we get. And I know uh, I get, for a fact in, in some of the um, classified uh, or excuse me, they're not classified, but they're secure. So they're intelligence community only type chat rooms they have uh, at our space. Um, there was especially in the last year, there's been considerable chatter. So this, these are, um, it's kind of like discord for, for intelligence personnel where they can discuss different things and they can come together. And these, um, you know, these particularly with the UAP topic, you had high level people that were coming together and discussing it. And so suddenly once it became acceptable, I think that people stopped throwing out potentially good stuff into the trash bin because they didn't think anybody was, they were, told uh, to throw it out or that was the impl implication throw it out uh, and they started looking for it and so i think that that uh, that definitely is I would, the impetus behind that statement uh, on top of the fact that there's been there's certainly been plenty of people who were absolutely in the position to to know who have said there is much better stuff yeah thank you so much that makes so much sense yeah I like that. No, answer. absolutely. Yeah, really well, that, down to, and I, cause I mentioned this uh, and I'll just say this, I mentioned this in an article myself and Tom Rogan wrote uh, for the debrief a year ago, Tom Rogan from Washington examiner. And mm -hmm. um, I said that some of the best intelligence or some of the best stuff that they had was nascent uh, measurement and signals intelligence. And, and I think um, with the UAP uh report that came out, um, the June report, the preliminary report, I think it mentioned something about not having any May scent. And, uh, I think some people were like, aha, you know, <laughs> there is none. And, uh, you know, to that, the, the point of that is, is that, uh, measurement and signals that you collect is evidence, the inability to collect certain measurement and signals is evidence. And so, the point there being that some of the best uh, evidence is that when you have some of the world's best sensor suites and platforms that can tell you the exact plane, they can tell you, you know, that plane's being piloted by, you know, Sergi, uh, his wife just left him and he had chili for breakfast, you know, like <laughs> they're that good, but when they're not able to give you anything and they're not able to even register that this is a mechanical device, this is an electronic device, that in itself is significant evidence because that's not normal. <laughs> so when you can detect even your, your best adversary's stealth uh, aerospace technologies, but then you cannot detect this whatsoever, that is evidence. So I think there's a lot. There, there, I know everybody wants the pictures and videos, though. That's the sexy stuff. <laughs> uh, which is understandable, but, uh, you know. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Each to their own. You know, I like the data. I like these kind of discussions and what we're seeing mm -hmm. happening going through the government. Now, a lot of people will just go, well, I don't trust the government. I'm ignoring that. Well, that's up to them. But yeah, you know, uh, I, I'm it, different. <laughs> it's always a, a, a totality of everything. I said, if it was just one person saying one thing, then I think there's absolutely reason to be hesitant or question uh, or yeah. be suspicious better yet. Everybody should, nothing wrong with questioning. Uh, but I think when you've got an abundance of people that, that are kind of saying the, the same things, uh, it's interesting. It's, it's certainly interesting. I, I think, yeah, for anyone in the United States, if, if they really, really, really want to know so, so, so badly, my recommendation to be to them would be uh, well, they're running a little late for this midterm. But but uh, the next elections, man, run for office and try to get on the Intel Committee. Yeah. If you want to, I mean, I know we push them and everything. I know we, 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 we send a lot of uh, people send a lot of political things and, and contact their lawmakers as they should. Uh, but at the end of the day, if you really, really want to know, you know, maybe it, launch the campaign, man, you know, so-and-so for Congress and get the win. <laughs> Let me know if you do. You let me know. I might have a new source. So keep me, you know, if that happens, don't forget about me. <laughs> sound advice well tim we've just about hit the hour i really really want to thank you so much for coming on it's always a great conversation sure uh, everybody great. here uh, anytime and we have to do it regularly because i could you know I, I could do this for hours uh everyone in the live chat thank you so much for being cordial keeping it a, a really pleasant conversation from what i've seen uh anybody that's listening to this after the fact on the anomalous podcast podcast network thank you so much as well uh, I'm going to be back next week with Caroline Corey, director of A Tear in the Sky. Uh, I'm also going to be on Instagram this week with Graham Rendell talking about his new book. And then the uh, I'm losing track of everything I've got going on. I think later this week I'm on with the guys from UAPX live on Instagram as well. But just follow me everywhere and, and you'll find it. So, yeah, that's it. <laughs> For now, guys, uh, going to love you and leave you. Take care and we'll see you soon. Goodbye.